is it will take 11 sermons. We're going to try to do 11 sermons through the Gospel of Matthew. I want to start tonight, uh, maybe this isn't a good idea, but I want to start tonight with a big word. And that big word is recapitulation. Recapitulation. You probably want to write this one down because I'm going to say it a lot. Recapitulation. Here's what that means. Adam was given a task to guard the garden, to work the land, to take dominion. He failed in his task. He sinned in his task uh, and was driven out of the garden. Jesus comes as the new Adam. And he does what Adam should have done, but he does it right. He fulfills what Adam should have done. He succeeds where Adam failed. I I share that word because one of the most important things to understand about the Gospel of Matthew is that Matthew writes the story of Jesus to point out how Jesus recapitulates every major figure in the Old Testament. How Jesus recapitulates, fulfills in himself uh, every major movement, every major story uh, in the Scripture. And we'll point that out as we go along. But let me just beginning, in the beginning, just point out one way in which Matthew does this. The beginning of the the book, the first verse is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I'll get to the genealogy in a minute. The book of the genealogy. Actually, you could translate it very literally, the book of Genesis. The word that's used there is is a similar word that's actually used in the Old Testament in Genesis, the book of Genesis. So right from the get-go, he points to Genesis. He seems to be going back to the beginning. Then if you go to the end of the book, everybody knows, I think, that at the end of the Gospel of Matthew is the Great Commission, right? All authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. Go therefore and uh, baptize, or go therefore and uh, disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament, the last book is 2 Chronicles. And the last verse of the last book says this. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Do you all see how similar that is to the Great Commission? Jesus is even fulfilling what Cyrus did. And Matthew will write his gospel in a way to take us through the whole canon of Scripture. So pay attention to that as we go through. In the text that we cover tonight, there will be references to Abraham. There will be a lot of references to David, to Joseph, to Moses, to Joshua. It's everywhere. And Jesus will fulfill all those things those Old Testament figures did, but often in surprising ways. Often in ways that uh, upturn expectations. Next, before we actually get into the text, one other reference that I want to bring up, because this is going to come up again and again. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when God is speaking with the woman and Adam after their sin, God says that to the serpent, he will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that the seed of the woman is going to crush his head. The serpent will bruise his heel, but the the seed of the woman will crush his head. All through the scripture, you can trace those who are the seed of the serpent. Basically, those who are opposed to God and opposed to his people. And those who are the seed of the woman. Those who trust in God and trust in his purposes. And we're going to see that theme repeatedly throughout the text of Matthew and especially tonight. So keep your eyes on and ask the question, who's the seed of the serpent in this scene? And who's the seed of the woman in this scene? So we'll dive right in. Once upon a time, this is picking up after, this is the the most important sequel of all time, right? The Old Testament is this 
great epic and there's a 400 year, about a 300 year gap where we don't have anything and then all of a sudden we get these four books that are the sequel to everything that came before. And how does it begin? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Genealogy? Really? That's sort of anticlimactic, right? You're going to watch this sequel and you get a big long genealogy. N.T. Wright has said that reading a genealogy of other people's names is like watching other people's home movies. Okay, there's very little interest. There's very little, why is this, what's going on here? We have to keep in mind that ancient people loved genealogies because genealogies were high literature. Genealogies told stories. And those who composed genealogies weren't just making a flat list. They were telling stories in their list. And I want to highlight some ways in which Matthew is trying to tell his story as we go through. The genealogies in three sections. The first section I'll call the rise of David. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. So this first section of the genealogy starts with Abraham, and Abraham was given a blessing that through him, God would bless all nations. Starts with Abraham, and then it waxes, it kind of, and it kind of goes up into this climax that results in the story of David. All right? it, it lands on David the king, and it's almost like it's at a high point. We're at the best part of the story. We have this king, God makes this promise to him. Abraham said, or God said to Abraham he was going to bless all nations. God says to David, I'm going to set a descendant of yours on the throne forever, and he will bring the blessings of the nations through his reign. But there's also some clues in here that Matthew's up to something strange. There's three women in the genealogy, now in that part of the genealogy. Now, that's not common in this genealogy, all right? This is a story of men begetting, right? It's from generation to generation. Of course, they need help from their wives, but it's a focusing on the men. But he includes these three women. And those three women are important because all three of those women are Gentiles. All three of those women are outside the covenant to Abraham. And that's laying down some clues about some of the things that Matthew wants to say. So let's continue with the story. I'm going to call this next section the fall of the house of David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, another Gentile. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So we have this height in David. And then immediately we have, uh uh-oh, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We have this great king, but we also have a reference to his great sin. And then we get to Solomon. And Solomon, we know, had some issues with wives. And it simply goes down from there. We know, as the story of the Old Testament, that the two kingdoms, or the kingdom of Israel splits north and south. 
The southern kingdom gets smaller and smaller, and eventually they go into exile. So we have this now, this story of tragedy, the story of the house, or the decline of the house of David. And of course, they go into exile, which is the absolute worst of the curses of the covenant for unfaithfulness. God remains faithful to them for generations, warning them over and over. But finally, he says, it's too late, and I have to send you into exile. And so they go into exile. And David's line is a stump. It's a dead stump. Remember that image of a dead stump, of a a tree cut down, because it will come up again. Call this last section the rebirth of David's line. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So now in this story, in the genealogy, we get a resurrection of the promises to Abraham and to David, right? It seemed like that story was a dead end, but now God has preserved this line and it has resulted in Jesus. It has resulted in this return from exile and it culminates in Jesus and he is the son of David. He is the descendant. So let's go to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Does Matthew have a number on his mind? Matthew has a number on his mind, and the number is 14. And I'll tell you that he actually, in the, set, in the, the last list, leaves a couple of names out in order to shoehorn the number 14 in there. He wants to say something about 14, and this is sort of esoteric, but I have to mention it. 14 is the numeric value of the name David in the Hebrew alphabet. One of the things that Matthew is trying to underline and sort of bang into our heads here is that Jesus is the new David. He is the fulfillment of the promise to David. He is the, the branch, the scion of David, the one that grew from the dead stump. And who is going to fulfill all the promises to David. So he wants to get that into our heads. So pay attention as you read through Matthew to Davidic themes. For example, in a minute, Joseph will be called, does anybody notice? Son of David. It's an interesting title for Joseph. I want to suggest that there is an invitation and a warning in this genealogy. The invitation comes in the form of the four Gentile women mentioned. They're they're outsiders to the covenant. But they were able to say, oh my goodness, I believe in in the God of this people and I want to marry into this and I want to be a part of that. And you can join the people of God. Even in the Old Testament, if you pay attention, many, many Gentiles come to be a part of the covenant people. So there's the invitation. You may not be a part of the covenant people, but you can be. But remember the kings I said were elided from the list? That's the warning. If you look at the kings that were elided from the list, they were idolatrous kings, especially idolatrous. There were many idolatrous kings that made it in the list, but these guys were idolatrous. And I think it's an implicit warning that just because you're a descendant of Abraham or just because you uh, grew up in church or some way, that does not mean you're a part of the covenant family of God. No one, the question ultimately is going to be, and and, um, 
and John is coming to tell us this. It's not because you're, you're a seed of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, that you're a part of the covenant people. It's because you bear fruit. All right, it's because you bear fruit. And this is a theme that Matthew's going to underline repeatedly in the coming chapters. So the question I want to suggest here that sets up, it's, it's set up in the genealogy is, are you a seed of the serpent or are you a seed of the woman? Are you outside of the covenant of God or are you inside the covenant of God? And I want to just suggest that, think about a character like Judas. We know the story. We have the spoilers. We all know Judas is going to be the betrayer. But, you know, Judas didn't start out and say, you know what, I want to be the worst kind of betrayer that ever was. Judas may have been a really well-intentioned guy. He didn't set out to become the seed of the serpent and to oppose the anointed one of God. How does this happen? How do you go down that road? Cain is one of the characters in Scripture that I think is reiterated in Judas. So at any rate, let's try to have a realistic reading of the characters in the gospel. Pharaoh that opposed the Israelites, I don't think started out to be this villain, but he became a villain because he resisted what God was trying to do. So let's talk about the birth of Jesus. Again, we're so familiar with these verses. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Remember that Mary and Joseph were in a betrothed state. Israelites at this time, the way they married is they had a ceremony of betrothal. And then sometime later, they would move in together. It was, a two, it was like a slow motion marriage, right? They had the ceremony that was binding. That's why Joseph would have had to divorce her. But they hadn't moved in together. They hadn't consummated the marriage. And so that's, this is the context in which this happens. Now notice a couple of things about Joseph. What's his dad's name? Does anybody remember in the genealogy? Jacob. Just like the Old Testament Jacob. He has a dream, just like the Old Testament Jacob. He goes down to Egypt, just like the Old Testament Jacob. He protects the people of God, or a very important person of God. Can you see how Joseph is recapitulating? We we should have our ears tuned to the going down into Exodus story. We should have our ears tuned eventually to to the coming out from Egypt story. So recapitulation, there it is again. The angel says he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is how God is going to save his people. By sending his son to be born of a woman. This is the theological word that we have, incarnation. It means embodying. This is a really weird way to put it. In meeting. All right? Meat. Flesh. He took on our flesh. Of course, we get the name Emmanuel. He assumed our frail human nature. 
He mixed our nature with his. This is the way that God is going to save his people. Because God knows that we, his people, are made in his image, but defaced by sin. And so God sends his son to take on our nature so that he can redeem that nature. The son of God became man so that men could become sons of God and daughters of God. Jesus became one of us so that we could share in the life and nature of the son. And the virgin birth is so central to all of this because if you think about all the stories in the Old Testament of women who were called to be a part of the seed of the woman, who were called to be a part of this genealogy, who couldn't have children, and then were granted by God to have children, they all point and are recapitulated in this where a woman has a child outside the normal biological means because what God needs to do to save mankind has to come from outside of mankind. It has to come from outside of what we can do in our natural abilities. It is a power outside of the space-time continuum that God made, entering into it to save those that he made in his image. And as one theologian has said, every conversion is a virgin virgin birth. Because every conversion means that the presence of God through the power of the Holy Spirit comes to somebody to change them from the inside. Joseph is to name him Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. It's the name Joshua from the Old Testament. So there we have another recapitulation. He will be a new Joshua that will bring the people of God into their inheritance. But notice it says he will save them from their sins. Now, Joshua in the Old Testament saved the Israelites from enemies around them. But Joshua of the New Testament will save people from their sins. And I think this highlights an important point that Matthew wants to say repeatedly in his gospel. We often think that our worst problems, our biggest problems, are our circumstances. And it's not that God is not interested in our circumstances. He rescued his people from Egypt. But we often think if this circumstance will change, if I could just be married or not be married or whatever, if I could get the thing that I don't have or get rid of the thing that I don't want, then I'll be okay. But this recognizes that the things that keep us from the flourishing that God wants for us are internal. There are sins. And Jesus has come not just to change circumstances, but to change that, to change us from the inside. Now, I love Joseph. Because Joseph doesn't speak. He doesn't say a word, but he dreams and he does what God tells him to do. He says, go ahead and marry her. It's fine. Name him Jesus. And he names him Jesus. And notice in the genealogy, what is Joseph called? The husband of Mary. It's him adopting Jesus that matters to God. That them together as husband and wife raising Jesus was Jesus was the father's intention. Okay, chapter two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child Mary with his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I hope you expect and you see the irony of this text. So irony in this case means a reversal of our expectations. I want to point out that a Jewish king wants to oppose the birth of Jesus, the legitimate king. And that Gentile kings want to come and bow down to him. Does that make sense? You see the irony there? We're going to see this irony through the rest of the gospel. The king of Israel, who is partially Jewish, he's agitated. He's upset. He wants, to, he wants to put an end to this Jesus. And it's Gentile kings, like the Gentile women in the genealogy, who are awed and who come to worship Jesus and bow down to him. This should make us think of all these Gentile kings throughout Scripture that want to worship the people, or want to worship the God of Israel. Melchizedek, who comes and blesses Abraham. The first Pharaoh who blessed Abraham and sent him out with gifts, Abimelech. Hiram, who sent many, many gifts to David as he was building, preparing to build the temple. The queen of Sheba, who comes and recognizes that God is with Solomon and gives many gifts. So there's this theme that Matthew's underlying that Gentiles see what God has promised to Israel and are flocking to him. It's the fulfillment of many Old Testament scriptures. But it's also the fulfillment of this. In Numbers chapter 24, the prophet Balaam, the pagan prophet Balaam, gave this prophecy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So it's a fulfillment of this prophecy that Balaam gave that a star would arise and that uh, that Gentiles would gather to this king of Israel. So again, the irony, a Jewish king joins and becomes a part of the seed of the serpent and pagan kings become a part of the seed of the woman. It also highlights the scribes and pay attention to what the scripture, what Matthew says about the scribes. These scribes seem to be uh, sycophants. They seem to want to kiss up to this king and they seem to want to be in the circles of power. But Jesus later on in the gospel will talk about scribes that are fully trained, his disciples who bring out treasures from the Old and New Testament. So there's two kinds of scribes as well outlined here. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So again, we have Joseph in Egypt because of a dream. And he protects This child that is this child that's going to be a deliverer, which should make us think of Moses being protected by his mother and the daughter of Pharaoh. And it says, out of Egypt, I called my son. This is a quotation from Exodus. Because remember in Exodus, God called the whole nation of Israel his firstborn son. 
Now that is fulfilled and recapitulated in Jesus, who is Israel in person. He is walking, talking Israel. And that should tell us and cue us into the fact that there's a new exodus about to take place. There was one exodus out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus is here to fulfill a new exodus. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he, that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The seed of the serpent always rages against the seed of the woman. And this is just the latest iteration in scripture of the seed of the serpent seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. Cain raged against Abel. Pharaoh against Israel. Saul against David. It's a theme that's repeated all through scripture. And now Herod has become a Pharaoh. He has become another one of these figures who is the seed of the serpent. Matthew 2.19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in, in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So Jesus is the rightly born king of Israel, and he returns to Israel, but he can't go to his city. Because if he goes to his city, he'll be killed. So he has to leave. He has to go to another place. He has to go to Galilee. The rightful king goes into exile. That should remind you of David, who is the anointed king of Israel, but spent years in exile before he actually took up his throne. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will not go to Jerusalem until the end, when he goes to go to the cross and to be enthroned. And then he says that he's called a Nazarene to fulfill what was said by the prophets. We don't actually have a reference here. We don't know what verse in particular is being spoken about. But I think there's a clue, and I'm most convinced by this clue. Uh, in the Old Testament, the word Nazar was the word of, for branch. All right? And there's all kinds of prophecies about a branch. And we think that Matthew is punning on Nazareth. What he's saying is that Jesus is the branch. He's the scion of David. And he's using the name Nazareth to pun on that word. So again, he's underlining the fact that Jesus is the new David, come to fulfill the promises to David. We go to Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. In Scripture, in the Old Testament, repentance is all, the call to repentance is always preliminary to God doing a new thing. And God is do, getting ready to do this great new thing in Israel. So he sends the greatest prophet of the Old Testament to call his people to repentance. 
But I want to point out that in Scripture, grace, or excuse me, repentance always comes through grace. When God called Israel to enter into covenant with him and follow his teachings in the Ten Commandments, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. See, there's the grace. I rescued you. I delivered you. Now I'm asking you to respond to my grace. So the same, so with Israel, they're called to respond to the grace of God. Notice what he says. He doesn't say repent so that the kingdom of heaven will come close. The kingdom of heaven is coming close. God is being gracious and merciful to his people. So repent and prepare for him. Now, let's talk about Elijah. Excuse me, I already gave it away. (laughs) Hopefully, John's clothing and where he lives remind you of Elijah, who spent time in the wilderness, who wore the same kind of clothing. We're getting a sense that this is a new Elijah come to fulfill what the original Elijah was all about. He's separated from the status quo. He's separated from the religious institutions of Israel because he's calling that people back to their first love. We'll go to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able, to ra- to able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. First, what does he call them? Snakes. Seeds of the woman. Oh, excuse me, seeds of the serpent. They're, they're not a part of the people of God. They're seeds of the serpent. They're like Pharaoh. These scribes and Pharisees are going to be Jesus' opponents all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He's calling them to repentance, but he's saying, right now, you're vipers. Now, notice what, notice what John calls them to. A major theme in the Gospel of Matthew is going to be fruit. Here in the beginning, John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Your life should reflect that you've repented. He says the axe is at the root of the trees. If this tree doesn't bear fruit, God is going to cut it down. Remember later in the gospel, Jesus will curse a fig tree, not because he has a thing against fig trees, but because it's emblematic of the people of Israel. They're called to bear fruit and they haven't. And he's calling a curse upon them. And notice multiple, multiple parables of vineyards, which are all about fruit. And all about God coming to look for the fruit that belongs to him from all of that. It's a parable throughout. And this should make us take us all the way back to Psalm 1 that says the blessed man is like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit all the time. But those who are not blessed, who are mockers, who oppose what God is doing are like chaff that the wind drives away. And notice the error that he confronts. You are children of Abraham and you think because you're children of Abraham that's all that matters. But God is coming to tell you that, no, that's not all that matters. You must bear fruit. Your lives must reflect that you have been forgiven, connected to God, and turned to him. It requires a new kind of life. And that brings us to Matthew 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
So he says, here's the key. Jesus came to save his people. He became one of us so that we could share in in his life, in his divine life. And he came to do that to give us the Holy Spirit. Later in the gospel, Jesus says a curious thing. In Matthew chapter 12, he says, make a tree good and the fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and the fruit will be bad. You'll know a tree by its fruits. I think it's a curious phrase, make a tree. How do you make a tree good? Jesus is saying you make a tree good because he is saving his people from their sins by giving them the Holy Spirit. I think the best way I've ever heard it put is C.S. Lewis said that what God wants to do is give us a good infection. Imagine a virus that you could be infected with that would actually make you better. A virus that would fix things. A virus that, I don't know, would give you, you know, powers, make you, make you think better, all right? It's the good infection that the Holy Spirit comes to bring because it's the life of God that he comes to share with us to change us from the inside, to transform us and turn us into good trees. Now, of course, you have to notice the ambiguity, though, of the image of fire. That image, fire can either be a purging thing, a purifying thing, or it can be a destructive thing. He says, you don't want to be the chaff because you bear no fruit that gets burned up. You want to be the people that have become good trees because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And notice that image of a threshing floor. Hopefully that reminds you of the origin of the site of the temple in the book of Samuel. Remember that David has a vision and he's told to go and buy this field that's a threshing floor. The temple was built on the site of a threshing floor where wheat and chaff are separated. And Jesus is coming to separate the wheat and the chaff of his people. Let me bring out three things that I just want to emphasize here as we come to a close. The first one is this word that I've been saying repeatedly, recapitulation. Our Lord lives out and fulfills all of the major characters and themes of the Old Testament in surprising ways sometimes. He will be the new David, but where David conquered with the sword, Jesus will conquer by letting the sword kill him. So it's new and old, or it's old and new. It's a fulfillment of David, but it's a surprising twist. And we've seen Joseph, we've seen Moses, we've seen David all referred to in this section. We've seen the descent into Egypt and the return. And what this should do, Jesus says in the Gospel of John that that eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. What this should do is bring further clarity, further nuance to our knowing of him. Does that make sense? We don't just know that he fulfilled the Old Testament. We know he's the new Moses. We know the various ways we come to know through Matthew's writing, the various ways in which he fulfills the Old Testament. He succeeds in every way where Adam and Israel and David and others failed so that he could lead us in a new kind of life. And that's the second thing. Whose seed are you? Whose seed are you? Remember, the the genealogy hints to us that that line, that border is porous. I think I lost the mic, didn't I? Can you hear me, Maggie? All right. That line is porous. You can enter the people of God, but you, you can also be written out of the book of life. And Jesus says, excuse me, John the Baptist says that relying on past religious affiliation, some kind of experience when you were a kid, your relation to the people of God by genetics does not help. Only fruit that is born in your life, a change in your life, living the kind of life that God wants his people to live. That's the thing that matters. 
If you are the seed of the woman who has come to believe in the one who has come, you are being saved from your sin. You are being saved from the things that come out of your heart that are the things that defile. And finally, that promise of Emmanuel, God with us. I want to make it clear, the Gospel of Matthew will make it clear that Emmanuel is God with us. It's God with those who are in Christ. And all are invited to be in Christ, but it's God with those who are in Christ. At the end of the gospel, hopefully you remember this, it's a bookend. He says, Emmanuel, God with us. And at the end, Jesus says, I will be with you always, even into the end of the age. But those are his disciples who worship him, who trust him, who are going to receive the Holy Spirit. By faith in him, we're exposed to the good infection of the Spirit who is leading us to bearing fruit, leading us to fulfilling all of God's teachings. He is with those who are in him and abide in him. Again, C.S. Lewis said this, once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? Matthew's inviting us to be a part of the seed of the woman who are united to Christ, who are united to his flesh, and who are being transformed from one degree of glory into another to bear fruit for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's come to the table. Let's stand up.